Welcome back, everybody. This is the Grace Life Fellowship Podcast. We hope you had a great Thanksgiving break, uh, but we're excited to be back and to share with you the beginning of our Christmas series called The Gift of Christmas. Pastor Tim kicked things off this past Sunday here at Grace Life with his message, Jesus, Our Hope. We hope you enjoy it. Here's Pastor Tim. Jesus is the gift of Christmas. When we, when we think about who he is, what he's done, what it means that God would declare to the world, I have not forgotten you. I have not, I have not abandoned you. You think of Christmas, and I know that for many people, especially when, when the radio starts playing Christmas music early in November, and I hear, I hear the debate, is it too soon, is it too early? Um, for me, it is never too soon or too early. In fact, on my playlist, I have Christmas music just interspersed with all kinds of music. So throughout the year, I can hit a playlist and all of a sudden this Christmas song comes on, even in May, and it reminds me of the joy and the, the, the significance and anticipation of Christmas. So I'm one of those people that you may be really disgusted with that says it's never too early, that, that really this season is a reminder of what, what God has done. You know, there, there comes this kind of debate every year. Should we decorate the stage? Should we decorate the church? Is it okay to have a tree? The answer is a resounding yes. We are celebrating Jesus in this Christmas season. We are celebrating the hope of what he has brought us, who he is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. And I, I wonder if we could consider for a minute that, that Jesus offers to us this idea that God loves us. You know, but before the New Testament began, there was what was scholars refer to as the 400 silent years. The Shekinah glory had left the temple. They were worshiping in a temple where there was no glory of God anymore. He had removed himself in terms of his presence from the face of the earth. And for 400 years, Israel was looking for the presence of God. Now, we know how the story goes. Many of them, like, like maybe even many today, think, thought that, that when God would come back, when he would reveal himself, it would be in a certain way, in an overcoming, overpowering way into the ways of this world and the ways of the enemy, that God would declare his glory through his strength and power by overcoming all the evil that this world and the enemy had brought. We know one day that is coming, but this first coming of Messiah came in a very different way, as a little baby in a manger. And when God was going to declare his presence to the lost world, he would do it not with the triumph and, and resounding applause of a conquering king, but in the humility and in the approachability of a little baby, an innocent one. But this baby would grow to be our Savior. But, but it reminds us that when God wanted to reconnect, when he wanted to reconvince you that he has not forgotten you, that he loves you, that he accepts you, that he will do whatever it takes, what we celebrate at Christmas is God's declaration of who he is, of God's love and mercy, of his approachability, of his humility, that, that actually it's these things 
that conquer evil and hatred and sin and make the enemy a toothless liar. That God himself would declare, and what we are reminded of in this Christmas season, is that he is good and that he loves us. And I think about what it meant as a kid. All of you have memories and traditions in your own home about Christmas. For me as a little kid, it was the excitement and the joy and the anticipation, the sleepless Christmas Eve night. Do you remember those? You remember those as a little kid? You had made your, your wish list and you had, you had thought, hey, it would be great if I could get these gifts on Christmas and your parents supplied them by and large. But you went to bed that night, if you were like me, you went to bed with the anticipation and the excitement and the thrill of knowing that the next day with certainty, all those wrapped gifts that sat under that tree that you took and you shook, you remember doing that? And you were trying to guess what it was. I did that ad nauseum. My mom used to hide the presents somewhere else because she didn't want Timmy shaking the, the presents, figuring out what they were. You knew that next morning you would open them and they would be yours from then on. The joy and the anticipation and the, the Christmas was the day that there were no rules in terms of what you could eat. Every other day had rules about the candy and all that kind of stuff, but on Christmas, and you could eat candy for breakfast. It was okay. So as a little kid, there was this just thrill of what was coming. It was assured. Then you grow up, and then we become adults. And, and Christmas could take on a different flavor. Has it done that for you? Where the thrill and the anticipation of all that it was as a little kid now, I mean, last night we, we got a tree and we were decorating the tree. And I know I'm supposed to say that that's a lot of fun, um, but it isn't. We spent hours untwisting lights to go around this tree. You've done that. And then you, you plug them in to see if they're working. And most of them don't work because they're a year old and you didn't, you were so glad to just put the decorations up last year. You didn't necessarily take too much time and care to do it. So you just kind of threw them in the box. And now it takes you hours to unravel them. And then after you've unraveled it and you plug it in, it doesn't work anyway. So there's, there's that. Then, then there's the shopping list and the crowded stores. And I know you're saying, no, you don't go to stores anymore to shop, Tim. I still do. I know, it's old, but I do it. And, and then there's the, the stress and the, the pressure. Have I remembered everything? Is, and, and all of a sudden, Christmas, this joy and this anticipation and this thrill and this hope that it once was can become stressful and we, we can be anxious and, and we can forget. I mean, have you ever taken a Christmas card picture? Every year we do this. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not against it. I enjoy receiving them. I enjoy when they're done. But it is a lot of pressure to look perfect on a Christmas card. And I tell my wife every year, you know, nobody's buying it. <laughs> if they know us, they know better. If they don't know us, it's just heaping a bunch of law and expectation on them. We really ought to take a picture in the reality of where we live. So there's always this pressure on a card to look right. You know, the glory of Christmas, what it declares is not that we have to look right, but that God made us right. So, so in all of this stuff, 
what I want to do this morning is remind us of our hope. Remind us that Jesus is our hope, that he is the reason for what we are celebrating, that God alone is our joy. He is our peace, and he is our hope. You know, when I, when I think of hope and think of what that means, for many, hope, let me go back, I'm sorry. For many, hope can actually be the problem. Listen to these quotes. Now, these aren't believers. These were poets and philosophers, but, but listen to what they said. Alexander Pope, blessed is he who expects nothing, for he shall never be disappointed. How would you like to live there? That, that the real issue is not that we hope the real is the, or, or that we want something. The real issue is that that's the problem. So, so how should we live this life? We should live it without expectation, without desire, without hope. And then we'll never be disappointed. As though, as though the end goal in life is not to be disappointed rather than to experience the abundance of life that Jesus offers. This second quote is worse. This is Nietzsche, and this philosopher, certainly an unbeliever, but listen to what he says. Hope, in reality, is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. Hope, not sin. Hope, not the enemy. Hope, not the world system. Hope, not the flesh. Hope is the worst evil. Can you imagine believing that? I truly believe that some of what drives our Christian faith into the ground is that we have lost, we have lost the perspective of hope. We see what's happening around us. We see what's going on in this world. We see the patterns of the flesh. We know the power of sin. We know the ways of the enemy who is a liar and a thief, and he came to kill, steal, and destroy. We see all of that, and we start to consider that there's no hope, that we think this world is tumbling ever downward into an evil spiral that is that is worsening and worsening. Can I encourage you that if we know how the story ends, and we do, that it says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, that whatever Jesus has done and is doing and is finished, it will prevail against all the hopelessness that we are experiencing in this moment of time, that we are seeing in the circumstances of our experience, that the hope of Jesus, which is assured, will overcome all that we seem hopeless in right now. He is our hope. So these guys got it wrong. Hope is not your enemy. False hope is. False hope is anytime we place a hope in anything that is not assured. When we rearrange hope to be wishful thinking or presumption, then it becomes our enemy. When we believe things like, oh, I'm hoping in God for this circumstance to change, there's nothing wrong with desiring that. There's nothing wrong with wanting that. There's something wrong when we expect that that's what hope should be placed in. 
Don't place hope in your circumstances to change. Place hope in the Christ of your circumstances. He is assured. That's why the scripture, when it speaks of hope, it never speaks of it biblically in terms of wishful thinking. There was a day where I hoped to be six foot five. If I place my hope in that, then I understand why disappointment is coming. Never place your hope in something that is not assured. Where will you be left then? Our hope is placed in the assurance of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 5 says this. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If we only heard and understood this passage, and hope does not disappoint. Do you see how Paul is talking about hope? It is something, it is a perspective, it is a reality that does not disappoint. Why? Because look what he goes on to say, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts and through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This tells us the perspective of hope is never to be placed in circumstances. It's to be placed in the reality of what God has done by pouring his love into our hearts and giving us his own spirit. This is truly, I'm not saying we believe this yet. This is truly what we hope for. See, I've thought for many, many years that my hope was that this circumstance would happen or this one would not happen or this circumstance would change or this would happen over here or that my hope would be that my bank account would look a certain way or that loved ones and friends and family wouldn't get sick. I have placed my hope in many wavering things. Those are all unassured. Those, those can all lead to disappointment. They can also lead to disillusionment with God because if I believe that it's God who has promised those things, then, then I lose my hope in him. False hope is an enemy, but true hope in him is an assurance. What we truly hope for is the deepest desire of our heart, that we would be loved, that we would be accepted, that we would matter, that we would count Oh, we would love, as Frank says, for there to be icing on this cake, for the circumstances to line up in such a way as for those to be convenient and comfortable. That would be really nice. And when it happens, we're really thankful for it. But when it doesn't happen, when you don't get that icing, you still have this substance, this cake, this sustenance that is Christ as your life. Christ is your hope. That this love that is poured out into you as 1 Corinthians 13 says, it is a love that is patient, which, which implies there's going to there's gonna be trying times. It is a love that endures all things, which means this is a, a, a love poured into you that is capable to endure, that can persevere even through the deepest, darkest trials of life. In no way do I want to be in the, the denial that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ eliminates the bad news of what this planet and the sin and the enemy has brought. It does not. It is heightened against the backdrop of the evil and sin that we see in this world. 
So we're not diminishing that. We're not denying that. We are, we are understanding that the, the bad news is a part of the story. It is not the end of the story. What we suffer through on this planet, what we go through, which can bring hopelessness and despair and disillusionment, is certainly a part of the thread that God needles through the fabric of our lives in order to get us to our ultimate hope, which is Jesus Christ. And without causing those things, he uses all those things to bring us to the reality of him as our assured hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's it's not presumption upon God. It's the conviction and assurance that God is who he says he is. He did what he said he did, and he made you who he said he made you to be. This is our hope. It's been poured out into our heart. You're never going to run away from it. You're not going to escape it. He loves you too much. If you find yourself in hopeless despair based on circumstantial things, God is not fretting and God is not condemning you through that. In fact, I believe the scripture speaks that in this relationship we have with our father, he's grieving also. He's compassionate. He's wrenched at the gut for the circumstances that we face, but he has not abandoned us there. And he's not going to leave us there. Don't make those things the end of the story, even though they're part of it. This hope, this hope is a confidence an expectation, it's a knowing, it's a reckoning, it's a considering, it's a believing, it's assured. Just as surely as I went to sleep on Christmas Eve with the anticipation and the joy and the thrill and the hope of receiving these toys and these gifts the next morning, it always happened, is the same idea that that the scriptures are using for hope, that what you are hoping for in terms of what's expected and desired deep within your heart, that you are loved, that you are not alone, that you are accepted, that you matter, that you have purpose, that you are, you are totally forgiven, that you are, you are okay and in right standing with God, that when God relates to you, he relates to you on the basis of his goodness towards you and how he made you good. And y'all are, a, a, it's a loving father and a kid. This is what is assured for us. This is what is expected within us. This is where our hope is set. You will never be disappointed if that's where you place your hope. And that hope will invade every circumstance that you ever find yourself in to make you okay even when it isn't. That's why Hebrews 11 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, the assurance. It's not buying a lottery ticket and hope you win. You've all done that. Maybe, I don't know. I know people that have done that. Buy the lottery ticket and hope you win. What do you believe about that kind of hope? You don't really believe it'll happen, right? You didn't go out and mortgage something against that hope. You expected you would love to win it. It was wishful, but you expected that you wouldn't win it. The odds are against you. When we place a hope like that in God, that we think that 
the odds are against us? It's presumption. It's a false hope. You know, November 8th, I hoped that LSU would beat Alabama. The odds, according to experience, were against it. November 10th, that hope was assured. We live in the November 10thness with our God. We live in the assurance of hope. We live in the reality of expecting what he has done and who he says he is to us. You never have to wonder if you are okay with God. Jesse and Sam sang so beautifully, our one defense, our righteousness, oh God, how we need thee. See, there's an accuser out there. Your defense is not your performance. Your defense is not your emotions. Your defense is not your ability to understand all these scriptures. Your defense, your one defense is him. He is your advocate. He is your counselor. He is the one who stands firm against the accusations of the enemy and causes us to stand firm and disbelieve the lies that are thrown at us every day through the circumstances that we face. And when these circumstances go awry and we think, God, you have left me, you have abandoned me, where are you? Because if you were present and you love me, this wouldn't be happening. Our counselor, our advocate, our one defense says, he has not abandoned you. I will never leave you or forsake you. You are still righteous. Don't buy this. Don't buy circumstantial evidence against substantial reality. Jesus is our hope. He is the one who has given us a new identity by which we stand firm against the onslaught of the enemy. How many of you feel inadequate? How many of you feel like you just don't have what it takes at any given moment? How many of you feel just less than, not sufficient? How many of you feel like somebody else does a lot better job at whatever you're supposed to be doing than you do? Don't buy it. I suspect that God has placed you in the role that you are in in your life because he sees no better fit than you there. There's nobody that's better at being you than you. He's made you to be who you are. The enemy is always enticing us to be somebody we think we should be where God is always reminding us of who he made us to be. You've been given a new heart. This is the love of God poured into you. This is the conviction. This is the assurance of things not seen. You can't see your heart, but you know it. You know deep down within, right where you desire, that you desire exactly what God desires. I didn't say you always feel it. I said you desire it. You desire to, to matter. So does God. He desires that you matter and he made it so. You desire to be loved. God desires that for you. That's why he is love, so that he would meet the desire of your heart. You desire to belong into a community that would accept you as you are, not as you should be. So, so does God. He placed you there. That's part of what this fellowship is about. And beyond this, this is just a building where we meet. This fellowship isn't limited to this location. It goes with you. Where two or three are gathered, so am I there. You desire to have purpose and to, and to matter. 
God desires that for you. For I know the plans that I have for you to prosper you, to show that you matter. And that prosperity is not the false idea of what the faith movement brings, that if you just believe hard enough, God will make you wealthy. That prosperity is greater than that. It is the prosperity of full maturity, that you will, you will grow into the full maturity of who I've made you to be. You will prosper. He loves you. He loves you. This is the hope within our heart. And then there are times where we, we mess it up. We fail. We fail as a parent. We fail as an employee or an employer. We, we fail as a neighbor. We fail as a husband or a wife. We fail in something that we did. Can I encourage you? God is okay with your failure. I didn't say he endorses it. I didn't say he dismisses it. I didn't say he even likes it. But your failure does not make God scratch his head and try to figure out what to do next. Your failure comes under the full forgiveness of a God who says, I will remember it no more, and I'm gonna challenge you to do the same. That if you wanna experience abundant life, it will never be hanging on the thread of reminding you of how inadequate you have behaved. If you want to experience true joy, true hope, true peace, true love, it will never hang in the balance of you thinking, I've got to remember all the negatives, all the things I've messed up in order to be inspired never to do those again. In Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. There is total forgiveness. He has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. He will never bring it up again. He will certainly not bring it up in those last days where we think that he's gonna play this movie of our life in front of everybody and shame us. Have you ever believed that? He's not gonna do that. He's gonna play a movie of his life in you. And he's going to show the glory set forth. And we're going to enjoy the popcorn and the movie and say thank you and praise him for all eternity. He is for you. This is our hope. We said even in this kind of a hope, there is the reality that we experience daily on this planet. Jesus said so. These things I have spoken to you, he says in in John, so that in me you may have peace. We want that. Peace is not found out here. Peace is found in him. But he says, in the world you will have tribulation. Please don't prescribe what that's supposed to look like. Please don't hear Jesus saying, in the world I'm going to bring tribulation. That's not what he said. Jesus said, in this world, there will be testing and tribulation. There will be trials. There will be suffering. That's what this world brings. That's what the enemy and sin brings. That's a product of the fall. 
whether it's natural stuff or DNA stuff or, or simple flesh stuff, that stuff is out there. It's a product of the fall. Jesus says it's a reality on this planet. And he says, it's, it will happen here. But he says, take courage. Find strength and comfort in the midst of this. Be bold against this. I have overcome the world. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus has overcome the stuff that you're experiencing and seeing on this planet? I have loved ones like you do that are suffering illnesses, maybe terminally. I have, I have experiences in broken relationships. I have regrets of my past at things that I, I wish had never happened that I could re-engineer and change if I could. We have all these things that we experience. Can you take courage? Jesus has overcome that. He's your hope. He is our hope that whether these things change or not, we're okay. What if in spite of all this stuff, God is pleased with you? I think sometimes what we need to do is, is look at how God related to Jesus. If you want a healthy view of how God relates to you, look at how he related to his only begotten. That's still how he relates to all his kids. Jesus lived in a real world where there was tribulation and there was pain and suffering and rejection. The Bible says he was a man acquainted with grief and sorrow. That was a part of his story. It was not the end of his story. It says that when God, when Jesus humbled himself, God highly exalted him. Did you realize that God's relationship to you as his kid is that he wants to highly exalt you? He wants to lift you up. He wants to show you forth. I think God is, is as we live on this planet, God is using his kids, living within his kids as a show and tell to the world. Look at what my kids are like. Oh, no, they don't act perfectly. They don't believe perfectly. They don't feel perfectly. You can relate to all of that. But I've made them perfect in me. And I love them perfectly. And I am in perfect relationship with them. And he's showing his kids off to a world that so desperately in the darkness they live in needs to see the light in you. But we've got to believe this. This is our hope. You're believing this doesn't make it so. You're considering this doesn't make it real. You're, you're knowing this doesn't make it happen. All of that is because it is real. It is so, and it has happened. Do you ever feel like God is silent? God, I have prayed, and I have prayed, and I have prayed, and I can't hear you. God, I have asked, and I have asked, and I have asked, and you haven't done. God, why are you silent? Have you ever felt like that? Like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling back to you, never to be heard by him? So many in the Christian community are asking God why he's silent. I think we might be looking at outcomes to determine whether he's spoken or not. Until we believe he has spoken, we'll never really understand the outcomes and how to interpret those. For the same God that, that is speaking says, I 
use all things to work together for good for those who love me. You realize God speaks. God is not silent. How did he start all this? In the beginning, it says God said and what? So all of his creative power was, was done through his speaking. In Isaiah, he says, I'm going to speak first and then act so that you will know ahead of time that it's me doing it. Jesus is the word of God. He is the living word that is testified within the written word. Hebrews says that, that in, in the old days, God spoke through various prophets and signs and wonders and other things. But in these last days, the days we live in, he has spoken through his son. To say that God is silent is to say that Jesus didn't do anything. No, I think when we feel like God is silent, we are not, we are not hearing and reminding ourselves of what he has already done. I've been through circumstances where I've asked God to change them. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Go read the Psalms and real, read real humans asking God real things, whether it's right or not. Ask him whatever you want. Nobody's up here saying, hey, if you're going through a tough circumstance, don't ask God to change. I'm not saying that. Ask for whatever you want. Just know that whether it changes or not, what he has done is enough. He said so. God is not silent. I just think we, we are listening for the wrong stuff. He has spoken. He is speaking. He's reminding us daily, moment by moment. You're my son. You're my daughter in whom I am well pleased. He said this to his only begotten. He said it at his baptism, and he said it again at the Mount of Transfiguration, as if to bookend Jesus' ministry here on this planet and say, before you start it and as you finish it, I want you to know I am well pleased with you, son. You're going to experience some things that are going to uh, compete for your attention, allegiance, and affection, and you're, you're going to be brought to some of these ideas, and maybe you're going to feel, because Jesus is really human, you're going to feel like, I've abandoned you. I will never do that. It's not within the character of God to do that. He is not a forsaker of us. If Jesus has the freedom to feel whatever he felt, and yet know that God was still for him, present, loved him, accepted him, that the sufferings of Jesus weren't to fix him. Have you ever thought about that? I hear people going through sufferings and trials and they go, God's trying to teach me something. I, I don't disagree. He wants to teach you what he's done. It's, it's, it's more than just let me learn something through this experience. It's let me be reminded of who we are in this dynamic relationship as I experience this. There's hope in suffering. There's hope. Suffering is not the end of this story. That's why Romans 8 says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, whatever's happening in this moment, 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, that he's conforming us to his son, that whatever is happening in this moment of time, real as it is in our experience, is not greater, it's less than whatever he's doing through that moment to reveal to us who he is and who we are in him. It's not even worthy to be compared to it. We, we sometimes, because of our emotions and, and the, the, the immediacy of this circumstance, we, we feel like whatever we're feeling is so much greater than what God is revealing and what God has done. It's not true. It's okay to feel that. It's just not true. Don't put faith in that. Listen to what James 1 says. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. This is a sheer impossibility if God hasn't done what he said he did. It doesn't say it is all joy. It doesn't say it feels like joy. He says, consider it all joy. That it's our perspective in these moments of time where there's pain and rejection and suffering. It's our perspective that needs to change, not the circumstance. Wouldn't you rather this verse say, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the, when you consider it joy, then it will change. That would be, a, I would love that verse. But guess what that would do? That would put the impetus of change on your ability to consider. Do, do you see his ways are higher than ours? There's coming a day, we all long for it, where everything we have ever thought should happen in terms of what to expect based on God's goodness and love, it will happen. He will remove all the enemies of his love. He will remove the world system, the power of sin, the flesh. He will vanquish the enemy and all his demonic forces, and he will do everything that you think he should do now. He will do it then, but until then, he is doing something now that actually becomes our privilege because it says we share in the sufferings of Christ. That only is a privilege if we change our perspective. That that is the only aspect of the life of Jesus that we can experience now that we won't experience then. But we experience it now, not absent of his joy and his peace and his love and his patience and his power and his forgiveness and his mercy and his compassion. If this is really true about us, then the other stuff he said is true about us, that we can endure, that we've got what it takes, that this trial actually just reveals that we have perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character, it says in Romans 5, hope. I believe that we need to change our perspective. We do not live in hopelessness. We live in the assurance and conviction and expectation of the hope of Jesus Christ, who in not just this season, but in all seasons of life, he is our security. He is our anchor for the soul. He is the one, when we remember who he is and what he has done in and through us, that we will be fixed on him. We then will experience, even through whatever we experience, we will experience him. That's our hope. Martin Luther King Jr. 
said it well. He said, we must learn to accept finite disappointment. This planet will bring that. But never lose infinite hope. Jesus Christ is our infinite hope. Father, we thank you for the truth that sets us free. That in this Christmas season, we are reminded ultimately of hope in what seemed to be hopelessness. Father, you have declared through this Advent season, through the the sending of your son, even as a little baby, you have declared that there is hope, that this story is not over here. We thank you for that. We praise you for the joy and the hope that this season reminds us of. And we thank you that it's not limited to today. Father, we get to experience this every moment of every day. Through whatever we face, we put our trust in you, knowing that you are trustworthy. And we thank you for your infinite hope and love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, that does it for this week's message. Don't forget to join us again next Tuesday as we continue our Christmas series, The Gift of Christmas. But this Friday, we have another edition of Conversations in Grace. This week, we'll have with us Emily Soule, our Director of Family Ministries, and she'll be talking to us about Advent. You're not going to want to miss that one, uh, so we hope to see you Friday.